Father, to you we come, giving to you the praise and glory for all that you have done for us, for all that you are, for the magnificence of your being. And even though in this life we only catch a glimpse of your glory, we look forward to that day when we will stand in your presence, beholding you as we have never before been able to even conceive. And Father, I am so grateful that you have chosen to make us your children, to cleanse us so that we might be able to stand one day with the new bodies and the new beings that you're going to give to us uh, in that, in the presence of your glory. Father, I pray that this morning you will glorify yourself through your word, that you will speak to us, you will energize us with faith, and that you will enable us that throughout this week we will radiate your glory to those that are near to us, dear to us, those with whom we work, and rub shoulders through the week. Lord, touch each life here this morning. Minister to those who are not able to be with us today. Some are ill, others are away. Minister to them, we ask to. And throughout the Sunday school this morning, as your name is being proclaimed in, in the many different classes, and uh, several from this class are at this time teaching and, and taking part in other classes, bless them too and the ministry there. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 50. I'd like to read the first three verses of Genesis chapter 50. Okay, if anyone doesn't have a page 81, Mike over here needs one, and a couple over here on this side. I'd like to read the first three verses of Genesis chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now forty days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Well, we find now that we've come to the end of an era in the story of Genesis, the life of the patriarch Jacob. 147 years God gave to him, and we have studied in detail how he lived that life and how God used him. And now we come to this moment. In the 46th chapter of Genesis, you remember, when God told Jacob to go ahead and go down to Egypt, he promised him that Joseph would close his eyes, meaning Joseph would be there at the time of his death. And here we have the literal fulfillment of that, as God's promises are always fulfilled. We have the literal fulfillment of that promise. And now we have Joseph weeping over his father, kissing him. He's dead, of course. But we have an example of a godly man distressed over the loss of yet another godly man. More than just his father the patriarch of the clan, the one for whom the nation would be named, Israel, even to this very day. I think in this there's some, some things, some concepts that we can derive that are very meaningful for us. God, in his great wisdom, allows all of us to suffer. And, and there are many people who don't, just, just don't get a handle on this, how it can be that 
a good and loving God who loves his children could allow his children to suffer pain and, and loss. I'd like to give some reasons this morning that I think we can support not only from Scripture but from our own observation as to why God does this. First of all, I think God allows us to suffer a measure of pain and, and discomfort in this life because that enables us to a little bit, just a little bit, understand the pain that God went through, the suffering that God went through in giving His only Son. Now, I realize that in the 2,000 years of church history and in the theological books that have been written, there's all kinds of arguments about God and how could God suffer and God's beyond being able to suffer and all these kinds of things. But I, I think that we cannot but believe that there was pain for God in giving His only Son to die on this planet, to be crucified, to be spit upon, all the things that we read about in the Gospels. And I think it helps us also to understand a little bit of the suffering that Christ went through, particularly when he carried the burden of all of our sins on his shoulders when he died on Calvary. Most of us have read the account of Christ's death many, many times. And I think we're all aware of the fact that he died much sooner than crucified people normally died. The other two who were crucified on the two sides of him had to have their legs broken so they could no longer push themselves up to give their lungs the ability to take in air and thus they suffocated and died. But Christ was already dead. Was it because he was weak? No, I don't think so. It was because he gave his spirit unto the Father. He had done the job. It was finished. And he had carried the burden of all the sin of the world and that burden was what really we could say killed him. I think that there is yet another reason that God allows pain and suffering in our lives, and that is that we might be kept sober concerning the true meaning of life. As we look at our society, we have the sense that, what are we here for? We're here for the uh, joys of having fun in life. You know, are, are we here to have pleasure? to look out for number one, to uh, experience all the good things of life. But I, I don't think that, as Christians, is the simple explanation of why we're here. God does want us to enjoy life, and God does give us pleasure and joy. And God does wondrous things for us. But sorrow and grief, I think, are powerful emotions in keeping us clear-headed and focused on the fact that we have a higher purpose in being here than just to enjoy ourselves and to give ourselves pleasure. Uh, we're here for the sake of God's kingdom. We're here to touch other lives for His sake. We're here to, to manifest redemption to the unredeemed and, and to be salt and light as the analogies are given in the Gospels. And as we fulfill that, of course, there is the joy and the peace and the pleasure that often comes with it. But, but, of course, in our sensually, sensual society that just focuses on mm, pleasure of every moment, you know, give me gusto, and you look at commercials on television, it, you'd think that life in America was just one big blast after another. And that's not what we're here for as God's people. And pain and suffering help us to, to recognize that, I think. 
Yet also, I think, that uh, another purpose or reason for grief and sorrow might be that we would be made continuously aware of our total dependence upon God. Not only in our dependence uh, upon Him for our physical needs, but for our mental, our emotional, and our spiritual survival. In our grief and in our sorrow, I think we're reminded that we need to depend upon God's strength, God's energy, God's help. And so many of you have testified to that as you've gone through hard times in recent months and recent years. It's only by God's grace and God's strength that we can stand and go on as we face the sorrows and the tragedies that so often come in this life. If we try to be stoic, I think that that's a false effort. Stoicism is looked upon by some as, as a great human virtue. You know, the American Indians were always praised by some as being very stoic. You know, they could go through anything and, and just be firm as a rock, supposedly. And as you go back to the, to the first century, there was a Roman emperor by the name of Marcus Aurelius who wrote a book called Meditations, and it's, a, it's the story, I mean, it, it's the philosophy of Stoicism is what it is. And he was one of those who allowed persecution of the Christian church at his time because Christians were not stoic. Christians were fanatical in their faith. And to him, anything that was fanatic uh, was, was wrong. And so I think that we discover that we are not self-sufficient. And this, of course, is illustrated in the world. The world is not self-sufficient, even though many will try to call our Christianity a crutch, you know. We have to have Christianity to, to help us along. But what does the world have as its crutch? Alcohol, drugs, suicide, you know, all kinds of good stuff out there, you know. Uh, faith in God is, is a much more sensible, quote, crutch, if you will, uh, to living this life than what the world uses. We need God to carry us through pain and suffering, through those times when we don't understand why tragedy strikes. We don't understand why it can be that uh, bad things happen to good people sometimes. I think he wants us to take comfort so that we in turn then can be his agent of comfort to others. We've noted this passage before, but I'd like to look at it again just that we might be reminded. It seems that we need to be frequently reminded of God's truths. In 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, we have a couple of very poignant verses relative to why suffering comes into our lives, why we may be afflicted. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted of God. I mean, that little verse tells us a mountain of information. God is the God of our comfort. And in His comforting of us, we are to learn what it is to reach out and comfort others. That we might be God's agent of blessing and comfort to others who are in affliction. So many of the truths of Scripture 
we believe, of course, to be true of God, but often God activates those truths through other human beings. He kind of infleshes the truth. And, and we have a responsibility to comfort others in their need, in, in their affliction. Often we're to be the agent of supply of need, whatever that need might be, because God is working through us, doing to, for others what he has done for us, using us as the channel. And I think that's one of the powerful teachings of Scripture. And that's a one of the purposes of the church. Now, the, the church isn't just to get together and sing a few choruses and listen to, to a sermon. The, the, the church is the fellowship of the body of Christ. And, and we're to minister to one another. And that's why a smaller group like this is, is a benefit within a large church such as ours. Because it's easy to be relatively anonymous in a big church if you don't plug into smaller groups at some point. And then yet, I think there's at least a fourth reason why God allows grief and sorrow to come to his people. And that is that he has not chosen to exempt us from the curse. The curse which came upon the earth when Adam and Eve sinned and God dealt with them, as you read about it in the third chapter of Genesis. Sin brought death and pain into the world. And Christians will suffer the effects of pain and death just as non-Christians suffer the effects of pain and death. There are those today who, who teach a gospel of, uh, of health and wealth, basically saying that Christians are supposed to be exempted from, from the pain of all of this. And we're supposed to just kind of cruise through life healthy and wealthy. And if we're not either healthy or wealthy, there's something wrong with our faith. We're not believing God as we should. Sort of like we have a bubble around us and, and, and the, the pain of the world is not to be our pain. And the suffering of the world is not to be our suffering. But, but God allows it to impact us, I think, because how we react to that pain and suffering is a powerful testimony of the reality of our faith in God to those who are around us. How do we handle suffering and pain? How do we take it? How do we react to it? That can be real proof of the extent of our faith, of the reality of God in our lives and of what he does on our behalf. It's a witness to the truth of the absolute na uh, essential nature of God in us, the hope of glory. One day we know we'll be in his presence and we need him, but we need him here. He's as essential here as he will be then. And this becomes, I think, a proof of that reality. As we suffer pain, as we have difficulties in life, it also heightens our awaiting his return. It increases our desire to be with him. You know, even as Paul said, you know, he'd, he'd like to go on to be with the Lord, but for others' sake, it's better that he remain here for, for a time. We groan in anticipation of the coming of our Lord in that famous 8th chapter of Romans. We have this reiterated for us in verses 22 and 23 where we read, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth and together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves 
having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, Paul is not talking about the, the status there, because if we are the children of God, we are already adopted by God. And redemption has already occurred. But he's talking about the, the experiential reality of it. Today we're redeemed by faith. In reality we are redeemed. In God's eyes we're redeemed. But by faith we claim that redemption because how else do we know? One day when we're in his presence, the reality of that redemption will be ours and every sense of our being will be able to, if you'll pardon the expression, uh, smell it and taste it and feel it and see it and everything else. It won't just be a matter of faith. It'll be a, men a matter of our real sensibility that we are redeemed. You catch just a little glimpse of this as far as humans are able to explain it when you read some of the writing, uh, writings of C.S. Lewis. When he tries to explain a little bit about what it might be like when you, you pass into this other life. Uh, some of you probably have read his work, I think it's called The Great Divorce. It has nothing to do with marriage. And in which he tries to explain what it is to be released into the reality of God's presence with, with bodies that are no longer subject to what our bodies are subject to here. Pain and suffering and sickness and gravity and uh, all these other things that literally hold us down. And, you know, even, even C.S. Lewis obviously can't really explain it as it will be. But that is our hope, and, and that's what we're awaiting for. That's what we're groaning for. It seems like the older the, get, we more, the, older we get, the more we groan. <laughs> the more we look, of course, we have more things to groan about, I suppose. But uh, the, the more we look forward to that moment when he will return, and we'll be transformed in a moment. So I think at least for these four reasons, and certainly others in God's mind, God allows pain and suffering to come into the lives of believers. And when we experience pain and suffering, we don't have to think of ourselves as somehow being people of little faith because we have pain and suffering, but to realize this is the experience of all the brothers and sisters in Christ in reality throughout all ages. It's the experience of Joseph. As his, as his father was now dead. When we suffer loss, especially the loss of a loved one, our grief, I think, should be as Joseph's was. His tears were not for his father. I mentioned this to you, I think, year, a couple of years ago in another context. But when we lived in San Lorenzo, down in the Bay Area, the, our next-door neighbors were Roman Catholic and my next door neighbor's brother died and he came over and asked if I would be willing to pray for, his, for the soul of his dead brother. So I explained to him what we as Protestants believe about that. I said, I'd be willing to pray for you and, and your family, but there's no point in praying for your brother because he's gone. And whatever his choices in life were, they are carried out now and there's no way to change that. But as you know, if you're familiar with Roman Catholicism, they don't believe that. Uh, they believe you can pray for the dead. They believe you can buy indulgences that will impact the dead. The, really, that there's almost no real separation between the dead and the living. It's just kind of like it's all merged together in, in some way. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. 
Joseph's tears were not for his father because his father was passed from this life, from the pain and suffering of this life, from the weakness of his old age. But his tears were for himself and for his family, for the loss of a father, but more than that, for the loss of a patriarch. To the loss of the one who had walked in God's presence, who had had heard the words of Yahweh, who had seen an incarnation of Yahweh, or a manifestation, I should say, of Yahweh, who had wrestled with the angel of the Lord, and who bore in the rest of his life a limp which indicated that contact with the Almighty. Joseph was weeping for the loss of that one because of the impact it would be then on the family. In just a, a teeny, teeny way, we remembered that when my wife's father died. Her father was uh, really wonderful, a man with, the grand, with our children and, and other children of his children, the grandchildren, and he was a man of prayer and, and a man who knew how to show love to children and, and really point them towards the Lord. He was a real soul winner in his life, and, and when he died, we felt a real loss as a family because we knew that the grandchildren would, would suffer a loss in, in losing him as someone who prayed faithfully and, and who would be a, a powerful example to them. And so this is just a little uh, way, but I, in, a, in a way it's, it's sort of what Joseph experienced as he lost his father here. Clearly our grief, as the grief of Joseph, was not to be like the grief of the unsaved who have no assurance of eternal life. I'd like to read a few verses from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, again this is a well-known passage, often read passage, but it really contrasts the differences in the hope of those who believe and those who do not. Verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, and of course the meaning there of those who have, who have died, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep or died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The purpose of these words is to bring comfort. Because as believers, as, as it says back up in verse 13, we're not to grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Those who don't believe in Christ and who have never been born again have no hope. They have no hope in this life and they have no hope of eternal life. But we do. And therefore, we comfort one another with the words that Paul wrote there. It's, of course, I think, easier for us to bear, to bear sorrow and grief if we know that there will be an end to it. And that end is promised. And that end is one of the great pillars of the Christian faith. 
in, in the 21st chapter of Revelation, we read these words, He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer, underscore, no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Because why? The first things have passed away. This world is gone. And there's a new heaven and a new earth. And this is the clear teaching of Scripture. There shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Which, of course, clearly implies that there is mourning and crying and pain in this life for the believer, because this is written for the believer. But then it will be gone. And, of course, that hope helps us to bear our grief and sorrow a little bit more because, more because we know one day we will experience it no more, our loved ones will experience it no more, and the, the church itself will be redeemed. Back to Genesis chapter 50 in the second verse, we discover that Joseph ordered his physicians to embalm Jacob. These may have been his personal physicians. More likely, they were the state physicians who were under his authority. The word for physician in Hebrew is rapha, which means healer. As was common in many ancient societies, the physicians in those days belonged to the priesthood. <laughs> Can you imagine that today? All physicians having to be ordained clergymen. <laughs> So many physicians today don't want anything to do with the clergy or God or anything else. We're grateful for those who do and who are both priest in a way and, and healer. But this concept of, of the interlinking of the healing process with the priesthood is ancient. And it goes back almost in every society. I mean, how many primitive societies is the most important person in that society? The shaman who is, who's, well, we, we loosely call him witch doctor, but, you know, the person who's, who's the chief intermediary with the gods, and he's also supposed to be the, the healer of the community. And the more effective he is, the greater is his prestige. And the less effective he is, the more quickly he will be eliminated. Most ancient peoples believed that serious illness was the product of evil spirits. Evil spirits came upon the person and, and, and caused the person to have these manifestations, these symptoms. And of course, the value of the physician being uh, a, a religious person, being a, a, quote, witch doctor, if you will, is that he could perform the incantations and do the magic necessary to get rid of the evil spirit. Now, of course, along the way, many of these um, priest healers picked up a few good things. I mean, they wanted to facilitate their effectiveness as physician healers because, you know, if you're supposed to cast out evil spirits and your patients keep dying, they're going to think that you're not so good at your job and maybe you ought to be eliminated. So along the way, they picked up the concept of herbal, herbal remedies. They picked up a limited amount of surgery and suturing and some of these things so that uh, this would, you know, enhance the possibility of their incantations being effective. And, of course, they came up with all kinds of poultices and salves and, and uh, various things you drink. And, and um, there are still herbalists today who would have you drink a lot of those things. And maybe they're good. I don't know. But they're ancient in their origin. The earliest records that we have of the existence of physicians 
dates back at least to the latter part of the fourth millennium BC and was found first in Egypt. These records were first found in, in Egypt. In uh, Genesis chapter 3, if you can remember back there, God's words to mankind was, were, you have been made from the dust, and to dust you shall return. Well, the Egyptians didn't want to accept that. Obviously, they were influenced by Satan, who's the prince of all demons, into believing that there should be a way to get around that, to avoid returning to the dust. If you could preserve the human body indefinitely, then to dust we would not return. And somehow there would be victory in that. Now, embalming and mummification. All of us, when we think of the word mummy, we almost always insert Egyptian in front of it, an Egyptian mummy, uh, because mummification was widely practiced by the Egyptians and most effectively practiced. They're not the only people in history to mummify, but uh, they did it on a larger scale than most other societies have attempted it in the past. It was rooted in the myth of the god-king Osiris, I don't know if you've ever read Egyptian mythology, <laughs> but it's very convoluted. And as you try to follow it along, it just doesn't follow a straight line. It just goes here, and it goes there, and it goes over here, and it's disjointed, and it's real disturbing if you try to find some kind of Greek linear thought <laughs> in Egyptian mythology, and it's just not there. But the god Osiris was the god-king of Egypt who was married to his sister wife, Isis. Now, some of you probably remember that there was a program on television. I don't know if it still is, but years ago. It was supposed to be a kid's program called Isis. I, I don't think it was real innocent, even though it was supposed to be one of those, you know, Saturday morning uh, things, I think. But Isis was a goddess, an Egyptian goddess, and she was the sister wife to Osiris, Geb and Nut, who were the earth and the sky, gave birth to four children. And Osiris and Isis were two of those, and they were married to each other, sister and brother, married to each other in this mythology. And it was through Osiris that the knowledge of agriculture, therefore he is often the, the god of, of springtime and the god of agriculture, and the god of the arts, all the different arts that were learned from the ancient, in the ancient times. He was, he was the god of all this. And he was so well liked that his brother, whose name was Seth, was jealous of him. So Seth up and one day slew his brother Osiris. And, and now the mythology at this point becomes very complex because there's several different lines of thought as to where the myth went from here. But basically what happened was Osiris was slain. Isis went in search for her husband's body. She finally found her husband's body. Somehow through this she became impregnated and would give God a birth to the god Horus, who would be the falcon god of Egypt, and he would be the god that pharaohs were supposed to represent. The pharaohs were supposed to be the living incarnation of Horus. Well, well, she found the body of her husband, and she went to the god of the underworld, whose name was Anubis, and he's usually signified with a jackal's head. Sometimes he was depicted as a jackal. 
but uh, he was the god of the dead, and she asked him to mummify Osiris so that he could enter eternal bliss. So through that myth came the concept that if you wanted to experience eternal life, the body had to be mummified. The, go- the body had to be preserved if a person was going to experience eternal bliss. The process of embalming and mummification was very expensive. Therefore, it was generally practiced only by the pharaohs and by the leading princes of the land who could afford mummification. And it wasn't until, uh, which of course meant, where were the peasants? Well, the peasants were kind of in limbo. You know, where, where, what happens when you die? You don't get to be mummified. Well, the, the theology was very, very nebulous at that point. Later in Egyptian history, they got away from the absolute necessity of being mummified, and there was some hope for the common man that he too could experience the afterlife. But the, the, the concept of the afterlife, even for the Pharaoh, was very, very nebulous. Supposedly, the soul of the dead person, which the Egyptians called the Ka, would, would be released but it would want to come back to the body. So once you were dead, that ka would go out and go flitting around the earth, usually in the form of a falcon. And, and then, especially at night, it would want to come back and, and be resident in the mummy for rest. Soul needed to rest. So it would come back into the mummy. So one of the purposes of mummifying the body was so that the ka wouldn't get mixed up and end up in the wrong body. <laughs> So it'd have to come back to the right body. And so, obviously, it was important uh, for the body to be well preserved. Of course, the Egyptians also had a a rather strange concept, which isn't so strange today because we have people today thinking up all these things, of of a parallel world, that somehow the Ka was in a world parallel to our world. It was very, very similar in everything to our world, except it was a different world. And because of this, whether you were flitting around in falcon form on this earth or in this parallel world, you needed food and drink. And so when the mummy was buried, you had to put in food and drink right in the tomb with it, literally. And then on the walls, you had to paint food and drink so that there would be this, this, these emblems of food and drink which would convert into realities to sustain the ka in the afterlife. I'm really glad we're not Egyptians, you know, <laughs> and, and that we don't have to believe that kind of stuff. But, but this is the background, at least in part, for the reason for mummifying the bodies. Now, it was relatively easier to mummify bodies in Egypt than other places because Egypt is a very, very dry land. And they have found people who were unintentionally mummified. They just buried them out there in the sand, and the sand was so desiccating that uh, the body was preserved in uh, some state of uh, semblance to its origin. Now, Joseph had Jacob embalmed not for any of the reasons I was just explaining to you. Joseph was not a believer in Egyptian religion. So, why did he have his father mummified? Uh, First was for Egyptian sensibilities. He He was careful not to offend the Egyptians. They, they would want the body to be properly preserved and to be properly buried, regardless of the religious belief. So he did that for that reason. But more importantly, 
He did it for the reason that he was going to transfer Jacob's body down or up to Hebron. And he wanted it to be in some state of preservation in the meantime. It was going to take a while to get it all organized and get his father's body transported up to Hebron. So he had his father's body embalmed so it could be transported. Jacob was given the short process as a result. We're told in the scripture it was 40 days. 40 days was the short process. The normal process that was applied to a prince or ultimately to a pharaoh took anywhere from 70 to 280 days to get the body ready to go into the sarcophagus and to be put into the tomb. Can you imagine? Now, this longer process, of course, involved complete evisceration of the body, with exception of the heart that was, that was left. It, you know, the cranial cavity, everything was, was emptied. And then inside was stuffed all of this, uh, all these preservatives to try to keep the body from, from decaying. But most importantly, the body was soaked for weeks on end in what's called natron, which is a uh, hydrated sodium carbonate. And it's, it's found in, in uh, salt lakes all over the world, particularly in North Africa. In fact, there's a, a lake in North Africa called today Natron because of the high content of this particular salt. And, and this salt would, would uh, desiccate the body and, and preserve it. And then when all these other preservatives were packed in there, and the rosins and, and the, the, well, embalm, you know, balm, the, the uh, what do you call those things, spices, were packed in and packed on, and then asphalt was applied to sticky stuff, and then you wrap the body all up tightly with cloth and wrap it and wrap it, and then you had yourself a mummy. Now, in Hebrew, the word for embalm means to make spicy. So some of you maybe embalm your food, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Now, where did these spices come from? What, do you remember when Joseph was sold by his brothers to the Ishmaelites? The scripture in that passage, which is back uh, 37 chapter Genesis or so, tells us that they were carrying spices and bombs down to Egypt. So Egypt was a big market for these preservative products, not just to make themselves smell good in life, but to make themselves preserved in death. And so Joseph was carried down to Egypt by those who were transporting these uh, items. Now, how well did this work? Well, in 1922, a man by the name of Howard Carter had the great fortune, you could say, I suppose, of uh, coming across an, what was probably at least, uh, if it was not actually an unopened Egyptian tomb, it was at least a non-ransacked Egyptian tomb. We know him as King Tut, Tutankhamun, who uh, was a, probably died before he was even 20 years old, and, and he was mummified. And uh, you, you may have seen pictures of him. There, there was still flesh on his bones when they unwrapped this mummy. And you get a general idea. He, he looked pretty old and uh, you know, pretty dark in color. But a lot of that was the process that uh, through it she went. But you know, we're talking about over 3,000 years this body had been in that tomb. And there was enough tissue left on him that you could recognize you know, uh, him a lot better than if he was just a skeleton. 
And, and so this process was, was pretty effective in preserving a body. Now, Joseph ordered the, the embalmers to do just the basic job on Jacob so that the body would survive the trip. But we're also told in this passage that he allowed the Egyptians a 70-day mourning period on behalf of Jacob. Jacob was Joseph's father. He was a man of great age, which was, remember, so amazing to Pharaoh. He was a clan chief. And therefore, to the Egyptians, he was an honored prince. He was honored apparently in life as well as in death by the Egyptians. And I think that honor was a gift from God for the faithful service of Jacob through the many years of his life. In John chapter 12, we read this. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If God accords us honor, then we truly are honored indeed. But if we seek that honor for ourselves in this life, Isaiah has a word to say about that in the second chapter of Isaiah, verses 11 and 12. Isaiah is talking about a day of reckoning. He says, Enter the rock and hide in the dust, from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty, the proud look of man will be abased, the loftiness of man will be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The one who looks for his or her own self-exaltation will be debased, but the one whom the Lord honors is honored truly indeed. And so Jacob was, honored in life and honored in death, with all of his weaknesses and foibles that we studied, with his failures, yet he was God's man. And Joseph acknowledged his father as God's man. And although the Egyptians, by and large, didn't believe in the same God, they nevertheless honored Jacob as a great man. And as we move on to the next verses, we discover they go in a great procession down or up to Hebron. So great is this procession that the people along the way stand bug-eyed and say, this must have been a great man. As this mighty Egyptian procession carries the body of Jacob to Hebron. Well, next week we'll look at verses 4 through 9 and uh, study that particular event.